crossroads of empires, battleground of the ages, city of peace and of war. This is Jerusalem, where archaeology uncovers the empires of yesterday, where prophecy decodes the headlines of today. This is where history and prophecy come alive. This is Watch Jerusalem. Hello and welcome back to Watch Jerusalem. I'm your host, Brent Noctegal. Thank you very much for listening in today. Today, you're in for a real treat. Earlier on in the week, I interviewed Dr. Sean Kingsley, who is the editor-in-chief of RecWatch. This is a magazine that comes out four times uh, four times a year. The latest edition is the Spring 2021 uh, edition, and uh, an article featured inside that magazine is by Dr. Kingsley, and he writes about King Solomon. The article is entitled, Seeking Solomon, United Monarchy on the High Seas. And this article that he, uh, what he writes about in this article is very fascinating. It's got captured worldwide attention with articles in The Guardian and elsewhere, talking about this famed biblical king and where we can find evidence of not just him on the ground uh, in, let's say, the land of Israel, but also throughout the Mediterranean, specifically related to the shipping industry of 3,000 years ago. And so earlier on in the week, I interviewed Dr. Kingsley. He was gracious enough to give us uh, give Watch Jerusalem plenty of his time. We thank him for that. And for today's program, you are going to hear this interview. Enjoy. Dr. Kingsley, thank you very much for coming on to the show today. Hello, Brent. Thank you for having me. You're welcome, and I'm very happy to have you. You're in uh, London right now, I, I believe. Is that correct? I am in London, where you could not get further away from King Solomon and what he stands for, and you're in Ground Zero in Jerusalem. So, well, we try and. Uh, well, we appreciate you coming on the show anyway, since uh, your mind has been in this for a long time. I've just gone through, actually, your latest edition of RecWatch. This is the spring 2021 edition. It's available online. We'll certainly leave a link uh, in the show notes of today's program to this really thorough magazine. I was surprised by its size. This might take a lot of work uh, for you to, to, to produce one of these. I guess four times a year is what your goal is? It is a bit of a labor of love. Um, yeah, I mean, I'm a marine archaeologist. I've been playing in the sea for over 30 years. And I started off in Israel, working in two meters water off door, where all the wrecks are very shallow. Mm -hmm. And then 30 years later, I'm working in deep sea wrecks down to 5,000 meters. So from the sublime to the ridiculous. Um, and as you know, there's a lot of politics in archaeology. Um, and I, but I'm really interested in taking complex ideas out of academia and trying to share them with everyone, because I think, you know, it's such an engaging area. Um, so with, with RecWatch magazine, what we're trying to do is we're trying to get back to those sense of awe and beauty of the Jacques Cousteau ears and make the ocean fascinating. And of course, when you get to Israel, everybody knows about the Holy Land, how the, how the Bible and the New Testament played out across the holy soils, but I think a lot of people still don't know there's such a rich legacy and maritime tradition which has appeared as around 500 shipwrecks beneath the ocean. So that's what we wanted to do. We wanted to talk to the pioneers who are in their 70s and 80s and also to the next generation and their students and bring them all together. And it was supposed to be a good 70 page magazine, but of course it ended up as a whopping 165 pages. So it's free for everybody. Um, we're using it for education and entertainment. Go to www.recwatchmag.com, sign up and 
plunge in. Yeah, and this I, I, I did that myself, actually. I was tipped off by a, a Guardian piece, which kind of discusses your article that's in this that we'll get to in a second. Um, and then I found myself going through the article reading more than just, obviously, uh, obviously yours. Thoroughly ent- uh, uh, interesting and entertaining. Uh, I think this, this whole topic of marine archaeology, is that the appropriate term for it, marine archaeology? Or... Depends who you are. Okay. Uh, I use marine archaeology. Old school is underwater archaeology. I had both <laughs> written down, so I didn't know. <laughs> yeah. If you're interested in just the technology of how ships are built, you're going to call yourself a maritime or a nautical archaeologist. But okay. to everyone else in the world, you're an archaeologist. An archaeologist is an archaeologist is an archaeologist. Right. And so how did you get into this? I guess you kind of you mentioned that you started in Dor, which is, I guess, just south of Haifa, north of Caesarea uh, on Israel's coast. And did you like archaeology or were you diving someday and you, whoa, what's this? Or how did this start up for you? I think when you're young, as in anything else, you're, you're, you're sort of meandering a bit and trying to find something that will turn you on. Hopefully you'll get a teacher who will inspire you. And I was really interested in history when I was 16 or 17 years old. But it frustrated me because it was all about kings, queens, certainly in the UK and empires and colonies. And I thought, well, where's the little guy? You know, where's the small currents between coronations and weddings and murders? Mm-hmm. Uh, I, I never cracked that. And between what we called O-levels and A-levels in the UK, my parents kicked me out of the house. You know, they'd always wanted to go to Israel and they never had. Um, so they sent me off on a, on a kind of experience of kibbutz life. And there I was, rocking up age 16, expecting to hate Israel with the, with the greatest respect, Israel, I apologize. Um, I thought there was going to be a lot of, um, shall I say, bearded wonders, uh, praying everywhere. And I wasn't sure that was for me. And where was I going to find this history? Anyway, I, I ended up in a place called Kibbutz Magan Michel, which was absolutely stunning, beautiful place overlooking the sea. Um, and one day we took a tour to a little museum in Israel. And I was used to kind of public school in the UK where everything's very rigid and strict and sort of Tom Brown school days. Um, and there was a guy called Kurt Reve, who was a Dutchman now living in Israel for many, many years with his kid on his shoulders, just waxing lyrical with great charisma and being open to everyone. And at the end, I went up to him and said, oh, excuse me, Mr. Reve, you know, do you take volunteers? And you know, he gave me the spiel. Yeah, you should come here. We dive and we open tombs. <laughs> little Indiana Jones sitting on my shoulder right, said, okay, right. that's me. And six months later, I, I, I cropped up and, um, and it, it all sprung from there for me. So your archaeological experience then takes you underwater straight from the get-go uh, or have you done the normal type of archaeology that we usually talk about on this, on this show? Yeah, so um, I started off doing a bit of both. So um, in England, I think my first dig was in Windsor, where there was a medieval manor house. And again, I just knocked on the gate and said, can I come and have a play in your dirt? Um, And um, it was a group called Wessex Archaeology, who are pretty much the biggest contract company over here. Um, And I learned a huge amount, because if you know anything, we're, we're the opposite in England to Israel. Israel, you go to a tell site and one day you've got 150 kilograms of pottery and it blows your mind. You go to the UK, you've got acidic soils that eats all the ceramics. And so largely all you have are post hole stains in the soil. Mm-hmm. So I feel that if you can dig in the UK, you know, you can learn to dig anywhere, really. So we did that. And in Israel, um, at door, you know, massive tell door excavations with 250 
Americans and Israelis and I get up at four o'clock in the morning, open the gates and get the dig going in the summers. Um, so, yeah, I did land and sea. And I, I think, you know, for anyone who's interested in getting into marine archaeology, um, I think you have to learn the basics, soil archaeology, dirt archaeology. It teaches you method, but more importantly, it teaches you how to think. And I think there's not enough of going to sites with a pure set of questions, certainly in marine archaeology. And I have a kind of throwaway line that ships don't sail in a cultural vacuum, right? But I remember one fateful year off door in Israel, there was a very well-respected team turned up to dig a Byzantine shipwreck, Ashan State from which university, um, and all they knew was that ship. They didn't even know that there was a port in that city or a massive town. Mm-hmm. Whereas I'm more interested in connecting all the links from the farmers in the field to the ports and the warehouses and the shipwrecks. Right. And I guess that that's a pretty good segue, actually, to talk about um, what, you've, what you've written this article about. The article is entitled Seeking Solomon, United Monarchy on the High Seas, just because it does put some of these facets together. And you must, because the, the, the text that we have, uh, the Bible, the account of Kings and Chronicles, and and perhaps even... Uh, some of the prophets that could uh, weigh into this a little bit in, in terms of geography. Um, we don't have direct reference to uh, King Solomon having control of mines outside of Israel. And yet, that's what you're writing in this article, that one of these mines of King Solomon or, or slightly thereafter um, is indeed found outside of Israel, and there is a, a, a gel or a confirmation in some ways um, with the, the thrust of the biblical narrative. So perhaps you can talk about what the Bible says relating to this period and why you would expect to find, uh, based on that narrative, uh, a mine as far away as Spain uh, that, that, that Solomon was interested in. So if you'd come to me 20 years ago and you said, you know King Solomon, everyone's interested in him. He's one of the biggest biblical personalities, if not one of the greatest celebrities in the world ever. Um, and we've got evidence of him on the far side of the moon, effectively, you know, 5,200 miles away. I would have said, as you Israelis put it, Shduyot v'agvaniot. You know, I have said. <laughs> that um, is Dr. Mazar's, one of her favorite sayings, just so you know. <laughs> uh, which which is a translation for your for your reader, your audiences, a stupidity and tomatoes, as far as I understand it, which doesn't, it loses something in translation. <laughs> anyway, but we have to remember about what I do, marine archaeology, it's very young. It's it's less than 50 years old, really, as a profession. Um, and things are moving very fast and very sophisticated. Let me just give you another example. Recently, some late Bronze Age copper and tin ingots have been found off Israel. You know, where did they come from? Presumably, it was late Bronze Age East Mediterranean trade. Cyprus would be obvious. Um, and they did the isotope analysis, and the reading came back as southwest England. Now, I would have said it's impossible, but that's what the science says. So I think our eyes become wider and wider as the archaeology becomes more sophisticated. So how I got into Solomon was diving off door, which was known to be one of the 12 administrative regions of Solomon. And that was a monumental two chambered uh, gate on Tel Dor. And, you, you know, you could smell the past, but could you smell Solomon? And we'd be diving off a set of islands. And one of them was named Tefat who was the princess daughter of Solomon. You know, and your mind wonders and you think, what if is this possible? I approach this purely from a historical perspective. 
I don't feel a need religiously, personally for me, to prove that Solomon existed. I'd like to know what the science and the archaeology say. So there's been an obsession with the United Monarchy, as you know, within Israel. Uh, Jerusalem, I'd say, is probably the most excavated city in the world. And depending on who you speak to, there's either nothing, very little, or less pottery than you could put in a shoebox to prove the existence of a United Monarchy. And there are these two camps that I call um, uh, the the unbelievers and the defenders of the faith. And they throw the kitchen sink at each other. And it's at the end of the day, you have waves of science and and uh, rejecting the science and, and the, the jury ends up hung. You have a stalemate. So I started to think, how can we break this stalemate? And for me, what the Bible says is you have this enormous temple being built by settlement in Jerusalem and palaces. Um, and the Bible refers to Solomon making silver as common in the holy city as stone. Uh, I got the figure here somewhere. Um, also it refers to him putting 7,000 talents of silver on the temple wall, which would equate to 260 tons. Now I take figures like that in the Bible um, as, as exaggerations, as you also find them in Josephus Flavius. But the question is, within that myth, how much of it is true? Myth tends to be a dirty word in Israel. Uh, Israeli scholars use it as something made up. It's not. Myth is something that was a very sophisticated form of history for uh, pre-literate uh, societies. They'd sit around campfires with oral history that went back generation of generation, and some of it was true and some of it wasn't. They didn't have a sense of time depth, so they wouldn't say, Oi, Moshe, do you remember back in 1734 how so-and-so happened? They did not think like that. They thought in terms of stories and things got conflated. So our job is how to pick apart those pieces. Now, Solomon, if he had all this wealth in Jerusalem, what was it based on? If he was going to have silver, gold, um, and if he had gone to the lands of Ophir and Tarshish in search of gold, silver, apes, um, peacocks, as the sources refer, it must have created a web of infrastructure. There must have been ports, there must have been warehouses, there must have been ships. And where ships sell, you'd expect there to be shipwrecks. So my premise was, let's have a new audit. Let's stop obsessing about the soils and let's look over the horizon with a new blank canvas and see what we find. Now, what we know from the archaeology and the history is Tarshish, particular, what I became very interested in, must have been somewhere very far away. So Jonah departs from Jaffa to escape the, the beady eye of God to somewhere very distant. And in the Syrian texts also, we know that Tarshish was somewhere on the opposite side of the Near East. It so happens that many years ago in Sardinia, a place called Nora, an inscription was found on a meter-long stone that refers to the Phoenicians, being in that part of the world and winning a battle in the 9th century BC. Um, this is interesting because famously, the Bible says that King Solomon effectively entered into the world's first special relationship with a trading venture with King Harem of Tyre in Lebanon. And together they pulled forces um, and went out to try and find these riches out beyond the coast of Israel. So this, so this, uh, Nora, so this Nora tablet, this is one of your one of your pieces of evidence that would put the Phoenicians 
uh, very far off uh, off the coast of Spain or between Italy and Spain. Um, very early on, we're talking about a period at least from when this is dated to about a hundred years after Solomon or somewhere in that territory. Right. Is that right? Well, ninth century, so yeah, um, it, it is later. Um, I use the Phoenicians as trace elements. Right. So I see okay. Solomon as sitting back in Jerusalem, minting it up as a kind of oil magnet tycoon, um, rather like the Chinese in history. The Chinese were a very you know, rich civilization. They did not want to go out to the sea. Why should they? So in the ninth century of the Common Era, when the Tang Dynasty exploded, they allowed or got the Persians uh, from modern Iran uh, to shoulder all the shipping and all the risks while they stayed at home and bankrolled it. And I see it quite similar to Solomon. I think he stayed in Jerusalem, bankrolled it. But then you've also got the archaeological visibility issue. You know, Phoenicians were shipping purple dye um, and wine in big clay amphoras. You know, what was Judea specializing in? Um, kind of sweets, honey, olive oil, wheat, the kind of things that you're not going to necessarily find in shipwrecks. The reason we find shipwrecks is because big stone anchors or clay amphoras or latterly in the colonial period, um, big lumps of iron and, and bronze cannon seal them down in place. So that's why I use the Phoenicians, a kind of kind of trace element to find the Solomon story. So what you'd be looking for is a place where the Phoenicians or Phoenician and Near Eastern material culture overlap with massive evidence of mining of silver um, in a place which may or may not sound like Tarshish. Mm -hmm. Okay, and so how did you how did you first settle on? I guess you, you mentioned the, the inscription. Um, did you decide one day that I'm going to just go visit south coast of Spain and um, see what I can find, or, or is this mainly book work that kind of led you to to this um, conclusion that these Tarshish could be located here? um in that area yeah i mean we we brits we do a lot of holidaying in andalusia in southern spain <laughs> um, and i remember on one occasion there was a new development in a museum in downtown cadiz the teatro comica the, the comic theater mm -hmm. and when they were excavating the foundations to create this stage they hit into some ruins you know very nice started to excavate the ruins and there was a series of houses on terraces and then they found these skeletons and it was a murder scene you know somebody had been murdered um, a house had gone on fire and, and they failed to get out they did dna analysis on the bones and were rather shocked because on the father's side it had a direct link with phoenician dna and indeed there was phoenician pottery in there um, and you had these remains dating to 820 bce this is early it's not solomon of course solomon was supposed to have lived between 970 and 930 BCE. So it's 100 years later, but it gets the mind thinking. Um, and yes, so I did a lot of uh, book work and research um, and decided that I'd take myself off uh, one summer to Andalusia and just get dirty on the ground and start looking at a number of settlements. Um, and what you actually find is Near Eastern and Phoenician remains are really very prevalent all the way from Huelva in the west to Alicante in the east, which is an arc of some 680 kilometers. And so you've also got kind of unlike the sort of modern um, Costa del Sol, you've sort of got a Costa del Solomon or a Costa del Finite, if you like. Um, so it's just a question of how far back in time can we trace, you know, these remains. 
Right. And so this, this led you, of course, to one of the most famous uh, rivers and mining areas in the world, uh, the river being Rio Tinto. Uh, and then somewhere close to that, you were trying to track down, I, I forget the name of the city right now, but you did find uh, evidence of even some slightly earlier uh, Phoenician remains, earlier than the, eight, the 800s. Is that correct? Yes, so Rio Tinto is some um, 70 kilometers upriver from Huelva on, on, on the coast of the Mediterranean. Um, and it still you know, was the biggest mine in antiquity, most famously in the Roman period, uh, but it's still being mined today. It's this real dystopian uh, landscape you know, where these sort of blood red rivers polluted run around all these massive extraction areas. Um, and you can imagine it's quite hard for archaeology because you know, what was there may not be there anymore. Um, but there's a little museum there with some Phoenician pottery in it. Um, and there's also an area and I started reading about, you know, where did this, where did this pottery come from? Where do these finds come from? You know, is it a hoax? You know, if you said to me, there's a whole bunch of Phoenician pottery 5,000 kilometers away, you know, I said, come on, this is, this is, somebody's making this up. It's just a hoax. Um, but then when you start to look at the context, it's really very impressive. So on, on this one particular site, the heart of Rio Tinto, um, before they started extracting all the ores, and Rio Tinto is very rich, has these sprawling uh, slag heaps of 18 million tonnes of leftovers of gold, silver, zinc, iron, copper. You know, ironically, what you would call you know, an ancient and a modern El Dorado. And we'll get to Christopher Columbus later, I dare say. Um, so there was a hill in the middle of this area. Um, and archaeologists both from Israel and from Spain pulled forces many decades ago, um, and they found these rabbit warrens of shafts that were excavated inside to the hill. On the top of it, they found an 800-meter-wide village, and when they dug this up, they were amazed to find that not only was it very early, around 820 BCE, but it was stuffed with Phoenician pottery. Around 30% was Near Eastern amphoras, jugs, etc etc and some of that Phoenician pottery was actually fused to remains of silver mm. uh, and next to it stone hammers and grinding tools for actually processing it so it's very clear there was some kind of frontier town here used on a seasonal basis to extract silver that included local manpower with Phoenician manpower so from there Rio Tinto I started looking at the sources again and what they said and found in the 17th century Blow me down, there's an X marks the spot. They actually call this place Chero Solomon, you know, the Hill of Solomon. Um, you know, on its own, that may not mean anything, but it shows that in, in local legend, in local myth, there was an association with, you know, massive mining and King Solomon. So you've found that, and I, I guess that would be kind of one of those moments where you're looking at uh, clay vessels, Phoenician clay vessels here in Spain. It's very similar to the ones that you would have found, uh, I would I would say, off door in shipwrecks right there. And you're just making this really personal connection. This isn't this isn't just book work anymore. It's you've touched these things um, in your marine bio, uh, marine archaeology, and here you are on top of the ground, five five thousand kilometers or miles away. You say, and here it is. Uh, by Rio Tinto. Again, you see this amazing parallel and, and overlap, I would say, with a story or a history in the Bible of Solomon getting his silver from somewhere, and then you're seeing a material culture, if I could summarize what you've said so far, 
of a people that he was in league with and kind of outsourced lots of his uh, maritime ventures to um, and their material culture showing up at a, at a silver, a massive silver mine around the same period as when the Bible describes. Now, if you've got that, what do you do with it? What do you do with this connection, um, understanding the climate as you described in biblical archaeology and scholarship circles regarding this period um, of the of biblical history? In terms of what do you do with it? Do you mean how do you communicate? Yes, it? how do you communicate? How do you communicate this? How do you communicate this? Um, I should say first of all, just to finish that loop. Um, that if, if the silver was being mined at Rio Tinto on Solomon's Hill, I believe it was being turned into ingots in Huelva, mm -hmm. which is on the coast. And I think that Huelva was known in this period as Tartessos, which we believe was the Greek version of Tarshish. So it closes that loop. Yeah, um, just wait. Well, if we could stay with that, actually, there was something I wanted to ask, because there have been excavations that have taken place there, right? Um and and the dating of those excavations actually is a little bit earlier than it's crucial. It's yeah. absolutely crucial because you know you you jump a hundred years. Right. So this um, is so, kind of the I, link. Yeah. Go ahead. Yeah. So you know you're 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 chipping away at the date to see how far back in time you can take this association with Jerusalem, the Bible, and Solomon. Um, and when you get to Huelva, it's 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 quite dramatic because there's this massive statue of local boy done good. Because it was from the shores of Huelva that Christopher Columbus, irony of ironies, set out for the Americas um, to conquer the uncivilized world, as, as the Spanish put it. Um, and if you look at his writings, he actually believed, you know, he was going out to find El Dorado, the golden one. And he believed that that was King Solomon's gold. So you've got this irony of Columbus setting off from Huelva in search of Solomon's gold when actually... Under this statue was actually ground zero of where it may have been. Um, he should have really checked his history. But the grass like, is always greener, apparently. <laughs> Ultimate. Well, the sea is almost always bluer, isn't right. it? Yeah. So when the archaeologists started digging beneath the uh, Plaza de Monas there, um, they were quite, you know, it was a very fertile, rich area archaeologically. So just one um, second. This is kind of like uh, lower down. It would be like a, a transit point. For the material close close to the Mediterranean, yeah, exactly. So Rio Tinto and Huelva are linked by a river, uh, the Red River, uh, the Coloured River, um, and Huelva's on the coast. So it is a port city in its own right. You know, I believe that you have manufacture Rio Tinto, refinery Huelva, shipping international trade port in Cadiz. So I think you've got those three hubs. And indeed, when they started excavating at Huelva, they found this mass of furnaces and sandstone molds, you know, for processing silver. Um, and, and again, Phoenician pottery, 40% of the pottery there was Near Eastern, Phoenician. And next to it, you know, the kind of goods that we know the Near East specialized in. So they found both ivory, raw and finished products. They found murex shells, the royal purple, which is very much associated with the Bible that Phoenicians were expert for, with uh, processing. They also found parts of shipbuilding, mortars and tenons that are used into making ships. And then finally, the date. The date is at least 900 BCE, and according to their chronologies, perhaps as early as 930 BCE. 
which overlaps precisely with the end of King Solomon's reign. Um, and you can play around with these dates inevitably, um, but you're always going to be stuck with the reality that archaeology is not a hard science. So, you know, fact-checking things and fact-checking Solomon is incredibly difficult. And to answer your question, what do you do with this? For some people, Solomon is a matter of faith. For secular archaeologists, it's a matter of, you know, hard science. Um, for me personally, I, I look at it slightly differently. You know, as I said, um, I'm more interested. I don't think it's wrong or right. This is not a black or white issue. There are many shades of color in between. Um, and I approach this whole story personally. And this is not judgmental from a position of religion. I come to it from history. And so I look at these stories as myths in the same way as um, Schliemann and other excavators going to Mycenae or going to Troy with the Iliad, you know, trying to prove. And the Iliad's a good example because uh, when Heinrich Schliemann went to, uh, went to Troy, you know, the Iliad waving it in one hand, um, they knew that there was a story of the Greeks attacking the city around 1100 BCE. And indeed, the excavations found evidence of massive destruction and Greek armor dating to around 900 BCE. I'll give you another example. Do I believe that a guy called Romulus was suckled by a wolf on the banks of the Tiber in Rome and became the first king of the Eternal City? No, I don't believe that he was suckled, but let's look at what the evidence shows. On the Palatine a few years ago, beneath, a, above a cave, they found a Roman shrine to the Lupercal, to the wolf's lair. Well, that's very interesting. But absolutely right next to it, on the Palatine, is a village of Wattlendorb round hearts, Iron Age village dating to uh, the mid 8th century BCE. So it shows that there is an element of combination that there were people living there about the time when Romulus should have lived. So, so that's, that's how I look at it. And it's a question of once you start unraveling these layers around the myth, is there anything at the center and how big and how persuasive is it? So this went and, and, um, I'm just wondering, like you, as you mentioned at the beginning, this wasn't a, as you say, this wasn't a search that you kind of started out with a preconceived notion of, of what the evidence would turn up. This was kind of something that, you know, you said, we'll see what's there. And, and then were you surprised when you did find, uh, I would say, more tangible evidence of the Solomonic uh, period's uh, maritime trade with the Phoenicians and, and more of those links starting to appear um, to give more historical credence to that story than you originally anticipated? Yeah, I didn't go seeking out to prove a theory. <laughs> I was quite open-minded. So, yeah, I was surprised. And, you know, it's, it's now not just uh, Andalusia. It's also in Carthage where they've got Phoenician radiocarbon dates going back to 900 BCE. Um, I think it's really compelling, especially when you look at what hasn't been found in Israel and, and how confused the picture is with your, your low chronologies and your high chronologies about whether Solomon and David ever existed. Um, but I should mention why I think this is important, you know. And why, again, I sort of was really interested in Solomon, apart from the personal angle of diving in his harbor. You know, I find it fascinating that Solomon is still such a household name. You know, he shaped in many ways the world we live in. 
more people are married today to Handel's arrival at the Queen of Sheba than to Pharaoh Williams over the rainbow um, or, you know, or Phil Collins, for instance. You go, it's not just in Israel, but in other countries, you know, Solomon's name survives in, uh, in street names, in casinos, in banks. Solomon turns up in Japanese manga novels. So I, and you look at the kind of the 3,000 or so proverbs he was supposed to have written. Many of those are still with us today. You know, pride comes before a fall. Love is sweeter than wine. There's nothing new under the sun. So I find it fascinating how his figure, we think we know him. You know, there are hundreds of images of Solomon by Hans Halbein, the younger, uh, from Dore. You know, he's, but every picture is different. And I found this really interesting. Everyone has a personal image of what Solomon looked like. But actually, when you start to peel away these layers, we really don't know. So it was that that really inspired me to go on that hunt. Hmm. Yeah, very interesting. And, and what you've seen and what you see now, I think, and, and your evidence is, is definitely compelling. I forget how many pages is this. It's about 15 pages or something like that. And I would say that your article is quite easy to read. Um, so if people are worried that they're going to get into archaeological jargon um, and not understand it, that is not the case uh, as you read through this. Um, so I, I just think this is a really interesting and wonderful personal search or personal journey that you've been on for a number of years it seems almost decades and kind of coming to a circle from digging from diving off the coast of israel to going halfway or almost three quarters of the way to to ink to the uk where you're from right now and finding i would say evidence of the biblical narrative and and i'm wondering have as you've released this I'm very, we're very privileged to be able to talk to you about it. Um, has this generated more interest uh, for you personally in terms of international press or media? Are there others that are jumping on this story or others that are just letting it pass? Like, ah, oh, here's another, here's another so-called uh, scholar that's claiming to have found King Solomon like the rest of the two dozen have in the past half century or so. <laughs> no, it's a real pleasure to be able to talk to Watch Jerusalem. So thank you for that. Um, yeah, you know, it quite surprised me. Uh, we had some coverage last year for one of our stories, which is about the world's earliest slave ship, uh, you know, that went down around 1680 and slavery and uh, identity are very important issues here. But and we got interest. But this story on Solomon just went through the roof, which really did surprise me. Um, and you're right. Just to tell your 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 audience, this is a deliberately a popular magazine um, and it's a popular article. You know, go to redcorchmag.com. It's free. Just sign up and subscribe and you can see the whole magazine. But, you know, yes, there is a duty on me now to publish something scientific, uh, which I will do. I just decided to do it this way because I can. And I, I'm an editor of a magazine. Um, and the reason I gave you the big picture is because actually I've been working on a book. This is just actually, you know, one or two chapters of a big book. Not so much as a cheeky, you know, biography of Solomon as more of a kind of archaeography, using archaeology as a tool to try to get into the mind of the ancestors and you know and it's a very fascinating journey i look at how faith you know was uh, people were able to suspend disbelief in the 19th century during the grand tour and solomon was everywhere and then he was pretty much beaten up quite badly in the second half of the 20th century and now the empire is striking back by a whole number of discoveries of of united monarchy remains in jerusalem by a lat mazar 
and on the edge of the Temple Mount. So yeah, I mean, I would like to get some interest to publish a book ultimately, but I have to, I have to do a scientific article. You know, we've got 53 shipwrecks that I need to kind of dissect and make mm -hmm. sense of because the story's not done, it's not cooked. You know, we haven't dotted all the I's across yeah. the T's because, you know, we've got, we've got a kind of um, an elephant in the room, which is uh, what we're finding with the early chronology in Andalusia in Tashish doesn't fit with what's going underwater, right? So the shipwrecks, which we find of Spain, of Israel, of Turkey, they only go back to the mid-8th century, 750 BCE where suddenly you've got an explosion of Phoenician and Near Eastern shipwrecks with stone anchors and thousands of wide amphoras going down to Carthage. Where's what, please mind the gap. You know, what happened between David and, and, the, and the 8th century? You know, where are those shipwrecks? They've gone missing in action. Were the Phoenicians such brilliant sailors <laughs> and they didn't sink the ships? I don't think so, because if you look, for instance, at English warships, which are probably the best sail and best you know, controlled vessels on the high seas. They went down constantly. So that's a that's a headache. And, you know, cards on the table, I'm being honest with you here. That's that's a problem in the visibility of the archaeological record. But I leave you with just a tantalizing kind of, you know, if, if any of your, your friends in Israel or visitors, when tourism opens up again, you know, find themselves out on a limb in Israel, go down to Tel Dor. There's an amazing national park walk around it, smell the ruins, get in touch with my friends at the dive center at Northern Wind, try and find Kurt Reve to give you a tour of the place um, and, and, and go and check it out. And if you're lucky, Kurt will tell you his latest story, which I'll share with you very briefly, is he went walking with his dog um, and there'd been a storm. And because it's shallow, you can see where the sandbanks have been carved out by these enormous, enormous weather patterns. And when you see darkness, you know the seabed has opened up, and it's like a oh, hallelujah moment. What what has been found? There's 28 shipwrecks at door. Everything that you want. There are Phoenician remains. There's stuff from Bronze Age, early Iron Age, masses of Byzantine and Ottoman, uh, but nothing, you know, from this this iconic United Monarchy period. Anyway, Kurt's dog went walking, swimming in the sea, and suddenly it was walking on water. And this perplexed uh, even Kurt, who's not very religious. And he went, put on his snorkel, went down and found an enormous two-meter stone anchor. And just doing some checks around, he saw the timbers were coming out of it. Took some about, thinking, ah, here we go again, you know, more Ottoman or Byzantine stuff. Sent it off to Switzerland. And guess what? The radiocarbon came back 10th century BCE. So it's very possible that where it all started at door, one of King Solomon's administrative centers, perhaps, just perhaps, in the future, we'll find the first shipwreck associated with this immortal king. Well, that sounds, as you said, tantalizing. Hopefully we can uh, get more info on that too. Maybe include that in your paper as well. That'll be, <laughs> that'll help the evidence for sure. Well, thank you. <laughs> Thank you so much for uh, listening or for joining us today. We've been talking to Dr. Sean Kingsley. He is the editor in chief of RecWatch. You can get a copy of this if you go to the the website. The website again, if you would just uh, give it to it for us. Yeah, you can find uh, you can find this article um, on our online magazine at RecWatch Magazine www.recwatchmag.com. 
And there you can also read about a number of other stories related to marine archaeology. Thoroughly interesting. I definitely uh, recommend you download a copy and, and have a read. Thank you very much, Mr. Kingsley. Thanks for your time, Brent. Good to talk.